I'm Michael. I'm Max. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Michael, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Um, my name is Michael Zaki. I am a writer, and I would always like to plug rabbits. I think they're the best thing in all of existence. What's your favorite part of the rabbit? Oh, the ears. Oh, I mean, and the nose. of course. Yeah. How could it not Yeah, could, that's not original. How could it not be? I would say it's a tie between the ears and the nose. The nose, um, rabbit noses go faster the more interested and excited they are. Oh. Uh, so it's a very telling part of the rabbit. I think it's very cute. I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. People think it's the breathing, but it's actually their level of excitement. They get, they stop moving when they're asleep because they're not thinking about much. They're bored. How do you <laughs> feel about bunnies? About bunnies? Yeah. Do you mean, uh, bunnies are a different word for rabbit. Do you mean baby rabbits? No, I just mean <laughs> rabbits when you call them bunnies. <laughs> oh, oh, I love bunnies. I love, I love anything you call rabbits as long as it's respectful. That's fair. And Max, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I would like to plug Frog Fractions Game of the wow. Decade Edition. I know it's been plugged in the past, uh, but I replayed it recently. Uh, and it's very good. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's on Steam. Everyone should check it out. It's a great game. I recommend the hat DLC, but Hop's signature hat really it's a great makes hat. the game. People love this hat. It's a good hat. Hat not, not recommended for first-time players. Yes. I think you, sorry, you should play without the hat. But then once you've immersed yourself in the world and the lore uh, of fractions, then uh, you should really play again with the hat. I agree. Give me money. Give Jim money. Just if you see Jim on the street. <laughs> this has give happened him money. before. <laughs> this is this <laughs> was during the during the Kickstarter. I met a guy from Australia at GDC and he was saying it's it's difficult to pledge to a Kickstarter, or maybe it was just like economically infeasible somehow, like the the, tr the exchange rate was poor to pledge to the Kickstarter, <laughs> so he just handed me a twenty dollar bill. Wow, wow. that's yeah. great. Has anyone ever um like bought your games from you physically where they see you on the street and they're just like, Can I have oh, a Steam man. key? I could have done that. I should have done that at GDC. I should have just been like, Hey, yeah. there was a guy who wanted to buy one. And I was like, No, they're not for sale. It was a limited <sighs> run thing. It didn't even occur to me to just like take cash. Yeah. Oh yeah. You should line a trench coat with Steam keys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was the boxed edition. Oh, yeah. Even better. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Are we ready to start on some topics? Do you have anything to plug? Oh man, Jim? I um I this this one always throws me for a loop. I am not accustomed to yeah. liking things. Um I will plug uh playing Elden Ring, Ring with cheats on. I've been playing uh, a lot of Elden Ring with cheats on. The cheats I'm using um cheat engine that doubles my damage output and halves my damage input. So it doesn't like totally uh, trivialized combat, but it does make it significantly easier. So, like, I'll usually beat any given boss in just a couple of tries instead of a couple of dozen. Oh, that's really good. It, it makes it feel like a video game instead of a slog. And I really love this game with combat made much easier. Like, it's it's like it's my favorite, probably probably my favorite Zelda game. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, imagine actually being bitter about this. But I used to be bitter about the direction the Zelda franchise went because I wanted to know where the series could have gone if it actually followed up on the original game instead of going in a different direction. Hmm. But this is that. I am like this feels so much like Zelda 1 made into a modern 3D game. The mystery and the exploration and like the 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 barren world filled with filled with danger, an incredible atmosphere, incredible variety of fantastical biomes and weird body horror monstrosities that are inexplicably bad at killing me. Wow. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. If you want to play this game, but you're intimidated by it, uh, and you have a PC because you need a PC for this to work, to get get a, get a cheat engine. That's a really neat concept. I think growing up, I had the impression that video games were supposed to be exhausting and difficult and painful um, if they weren't. If they weren't easy for you <laughs> right away, or that that was kind of the point of them. And I really love the idea of video games not being something you uh, necessarily are going after for some kind of achievement. You're just actually enjoying a game and you can enjoy them different ways. Yeah. 
Actually, I can't remember now if you can turn off enemies noticing you. I think you can. And just running around the world, like, I bet you could get 20 good hours out of this game just running around the world and looking at stuff. Mm. And the downside to that is, like, a lot of content is gated behind boss fights. I actually saw very recently the, like, this older concept art for Legend of Zelda that definitely, like, works in your favor of the argument that it's, like, a good successor to the Mm -hmm. original Zelda. Uh, from Katsuya Terada, who, looking at this concept art, it it looks so much more like Dark Souls and that vein of games than the kind of look and and mood of the current direction of Zelda. Yeah, and like the the scale of of big things in it, where it's like big columns with uh massively muscular horsemen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what art you're talking about, but that sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to take a shit on Breath of the Wild because. Breath of the Wild did some amazing things with, well, first of all, one thing I can say that Breath of the Wild that, that, that is much better than, rather than Elden Ring is that Elden Ring did not save the Zelda series from its death spiral, whereas Breath of the Wild mm. did. And so that, for that, I give it massive props. So in Breath of the Wild, like I've seen interviews where people talk about, this is a topic now, by the way, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've seen interviews where the developers talk about like designing the world such that no matter where you are in the world, you can always see something interesting. And when you go there, there's always something interesting to do, which is so much different from the vast majority. Like I was just playing Skyrim a few months ago, and that is so not the case for that. Like you see something interesting in Skyrim, probably it's where a quest ends or something like that. You go there, there's nothing to do. You know, maybe you can collect a a flower or maybe a bear will attack you. Yeah, that is the thing that like I've noticed sometimes – I'm often disappointed in games when uh, the most interesting world state is before you've touched anything. And then like once you're done with it, then it's lost everything that's interesting about it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's no fun. I haven't played much at all of the like Dark Souls and Elden Ring vein of games, but they do feel like it's just a poetic place that whether you live or die there, it kind of it impacts the world, but it, it definitely seems like it's as interesting. Just like a weird place. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the world in Elden Ring is like that as well. Uh, to finish my mm-hmm. thought, though, Elden Ring's world design is, is just as good. Like, I would, it's the first game I've played since then that, that I could put up in that same, like, they stood up on those shoulders and they fucking went for it. And it's really an accomplishment that I'm really impressed by. It doesn't have a paraglider, which is a shame, but... <laughs> But it it does have a double jumping horse, which is pretty good. Wow. And it has sheep that will, if you scare them, they will roll up into a wheel and roll away. <gasps> oh, man. I would feel so conflicted about scaring little sheep. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> you, you'll scare plenty of them by accident. That's really good to know and good to hear, I think, from you, especially that, like, uh, that I have permission. So I played, for example, I played Control a few years ago. And I like the world. Bu- I like the world building, and I didn't like the combat. And there was no difficulty setting, so I had to cheat in order to keep playing. I, mean, I guess I could have sucked it up and learned the combat, even though I didn't like it. But uh, and so I, I downloaded it to cheat a trainer and cheated my way through the game. And then, like apparently, like a few months later, they patched in accessibility options, uh, which did exactly what the cheats did, uh, which is great. It's fantastic. Like now, people who uh, don't have the reflexes or the coordination to do uh, the difficult combat, the twitchy combat, or they just don't want to. Now they can enjoy the rest of this game too. Uh, and if FromSoft did this with the Souls series, their player base would revolt because like, part of the experience of playing the Dark Souls games is that it feels like an achievement. And if somebody can finish the mm-hmm. game without achieving anything, then it feels lesser. It feels like you've lost something. Yeah, I think that's an attitude some people just have about a lot of things in life that it doesn't, they, they worry about people getting to the same place without struggling as much. And yeah, I'm really interested about how we can uh, foster a different sense of what accomplishment means and like let people show off exactly how much they accomplish without. Yeah, yeah. Especially like, and that, that's not even getting into like, this is a fake accomplishment. This is like... Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I went to this talk from an architect who is talking about accessibility in architecture. And 
it feels like there's definitely an overlap in the type of anti-accessibility mindset in video games and in like architecture snobs where uh their perception of the thing is like oh it like ruins the the atmosphere of the thing to add like a wheelchair ramp yeah Uh, and their perception of the thing is like that uh making something that's challenging and like exclusionary has to be that way to like set some sort of tone but this person like showed some neat examples of like architecture uh around the world that kind of accommodates both pathways by like allowing a challenging route to be optional mm-hmm. and in that way it's all the more of an inviting challenge rather than like making it so the challenge isn't something that you want to invest in anymore like they showed this uh Japanese temple where the ramps to get up to this temple that's high on the hillside uh like interweave the stairway so at any point you can climb this like 500 stairs to get up there uh but at any point when you if you're tired of that you can use this much more leisurely ramp uh that like interweaves the stairway Mm -hmm. uh but if you want to take the challenge of just going straight up the stairs it's there uh and you can kind of meet the people who aren't taking that challenge along the way yeah yeah it's it's a constraint problem how can you make a yeah. pretty room or building within the constraints of following uh ada compliance yeah and notably like in a video game you don't have to do that because if the player doesn't want to see your accessibility options they just never need to go into the menu but i would like to point out that like like all Souls games, Elden Ring actually does have a lot of ways to make the game easier that a lot of players frown on, like summoning co-op help or or like looking up extremely effective builds for specific bosses on the internet. I, I think it's great that that's there, that like there's all these all these options to like, especially for players, if you're on console and you can't cheat. Like, but for me personally, like when I, the idea of going to the internet to figure out like, okay, what's a good strategy for beating this boss? It reminds me like I already do enough of that shit on my job where I go to stack overflow and try to figure out why this API isn't working. And I go like, I, I, I find a, a question that's the same question that I have. And all the answers are like, why are you doing it that way? And like, I just don't want to do that in a video game too. <laughs> that would be pretty good to have a spooky house game. And then you enter in the front door and it's like, why would you come in? Here? <laughs> like, this place seems like an existential and just like a physical danger. Do you see that roof collapsing from the outside? Like, why would you go in here? <laughs> Are you talking about me, the protagonist or me, the player? <laughs> because like me, the player went in there because it seemed like it would be interesting to do so. Yeah. I'll see some, I'll see some bespoke content. Are we, Are we yeah. ready to start on some topics? Yeah. Uh, Michael, your topic is world's greatest author, Chuck Tingle. Yeah. Uh, So I phrased it that way because um, I. Yeah, it's it's in scare quotes, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I I heard that Chuck Tingle has come up before, and I think some people may know he is the author of real books um, that a lot of people think are memes. They're spoof erotica. They have these strange covers that's got like a human face on like a tornado. Um, and there's a human man who's going to have sex with the tornado, um, which if you if you read them is just some stuff about a guy in a tornado hanging out and then regular human sex. They don't explain. Oh, um, what? <laughs> but I, I said world's greatest author, Chuck Tingle, because that's the way he refers to himself. Right. Yes. And uh, I still can't get over the fact that nobody fucks the tornado. They do. Well, they do fuck the tornado. Yeah, they just. But... Yeah. Oh, oh, I, I misunderstood. Okay, never, never. I'm, I'm. The tornado just has like a butthole. Oh, uh, and it does not explain what the tornado's butthole is. Oh, it probably is. picked it up. Yeah. with all the other other debris. Yeah, one of the early ones, and I think the first one I read was my billionaire jet plane pounds me in the butt, and they just they just talk about this um, airplane having a penis, but they don't explain how that works or where it is really, I don't think. <laughs> and a lot of them are just kind of intangible concepts. I read one that was about candy corn that was sentient, mm-hmm. um, human size. Candy corn has a penis. 
<laughs> yeah. The candy corn actually had a vagina. He branched into lesbian oh, <laughs> fiction wow. at some point. And I'm really interested in the way that Chuck Tingle is an autistic icon. Because he's a writer of erotica, but he also, on social media, has developed this whole lexicon that's the way he refers to things. And I really love it. Um, let me think of some examples. He calls himself the world's, world's greatest author, which is, I guess, not a code for anything. <laughs> but he, over following him on Twitter for, like, I think multiple years, I started to put together a narrative, like, he talks about chocolate milk and i think he has alluded to having like an alcohol problem and he is he says chocolate milk kind of in place of alcohol and i wasn't sure if that was true but there was a part in one of the books um that i was reading where someone's like offering someone a drink and it's chocolate milk on social media he'll just say like he's talked about his son um being upset that he drinks too much chocolate milk or something like that. And I don't actually know if that's true, <laughs> but a lot of the things he says seem very nonsensical. But if you follow him long enough, they're all specific words for something like um, he calls hateful people devils. And for a while he had a nemesis uh, that he has stopped referencing, um, but he's very vocal about trans rights and a variety of other things. And, and he's a chocoholic. He's a chocoholic, and he really loves spaghetti. And I don't know if that's a code or if he just really loves spaghetti. He is autistic and has said so and talks about depression and mental health issues, but kind of in a, a coded way. Do you get any sense of how much of this is just this is who he is versus how much of this is like this is the persona he's cultivated? Yeah, people speculated about that for a long time and still do. And I think it seemed like a persona for a long time. It's like, okay, you're using these confusing co-words and you have this fantastical fiction but i think it's in his support of trans people that i have started to lose that where it seems like because i'm also autistic and i i think that's what's interesting is that he has like very eloquent things to say when he has an opinion about anything and he still uses that language and the way that he uses that language feels like He's fully embodying that, and I don't see a reason to do that, especially because he has said that he's autistic. And so it feels like um, he's found a way to just actually be himself all the way in public, and I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, that's neat. Do you feel like there's anyone else kind of in his same category of work? Not that I've seen. Like meme erotica? <laughs> or just like his own lexicon that... It just shapes the work. I guess you could argue a lot of people, but no, it's a very, yeah, it's a really, really interesting form. And also, I want to emphasize uh, to listeners, uh, in case you you dive right in, you should probably be aware it is it is definitely like erotica, even though it's also a joke. Right. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very explicit erotica. It just doesn't. There's no connection. Like he doesn't explain how that anatomy is working. So you'll go from something that's very funny um, straight into it. And it's just, it's the way you would describe a human sex scene. And he'll just kind of throw in other things. I, I read one that was like with the state of California. Yeah. And there were some puns about being in the state of California. <laughs> and and the, the things the, that the state of California has found to cause cancer. Oh, oh that's man. good. I don't think that's in there. But like the state of California is on vacation in Florida. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turns out is stalking a man. I'm sorry, that's a spoiler. It's in the title. Uh, it is. It is in the title. But it also, to me, was a spoiler. I forgot between reading the title and getting to <laughs> what the yeah. twist was. It turns out he's uh, the the state of California is stalking a man who visited California a while ago, and he was so enamored by this man that he followed this man to Florida. <laughs> I think this that kind of thing. Because a lot of people were saying that he was pretending to be autistic as part of a character or a bit, and he has refuted that, but he has a very anonymous presence. But I think the more of his work and also social media I've looked at, the more that seems very impossible <laughs> to fake. It feels like very soothing to me to see someone just kind of explore the strange connections in their own mind. And I think most people probably are capable of 
making those kind of strange connections, but it seems very, I'm, I'm very happy for someone that can have a career on that. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible opportunity. You, you had mentioned, um, that it's, it's a joke, but it's also actually erotica. Like, are you intended to masturbate while reading this? Are you intended to laugh and masturbate at the same time? Is that the idea? <laughs> I'm unclear. I did see a joke from him. I saw he said once kind of addressing people being like, oh, yeah, it's a good joke. And he's like, yeah, joke. That's the point. Um, I, I've i never really found them erotic because there's too much joke going on. And But I'm sure someone, I'm sure plenty of people find it erotic. Right. It's definitely got all the erotic words in there. It's kind of like if you copy and pasted a like very beginner erotic story, but you filled it in with just a lot of fantastical details, like no one has arms. Uh, and I think that is part of the joke, but also uh, I guess someone could. I'm, I'm sure people find it erotic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Hey, this is a comparison I'm just coming up with now, so I don't actually know how well it works. But maybe it's kind of like the same level of erotic as like like pinup drawings on the side of your fighter jet. Okay, <laughs> sure. Like there's something titillating there, and that's a part of the experience. But the juxtaposition is what makes it fun. I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I like that. Like if you're going to war, you definitely want this Chuck Tingle paperback in your back pocket. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure your fighter jet has a massive cock. Yeah. <laughs> Even though no one knows exactly where it is. Oh, although I think in the in the billionaire jumbo jet, the butt of the plane is inside the cockpit of the plane. Of course, that's the only place that makes sense. It would be so yeah. uncomfortable to be anywhere else. It seems to allude that the penis of the plane is on the underside no, of the, the plane. The penis is definitely the joystick. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or is that two on the nose? Chuck Tingle, right in. They're really, they're good. They're, um, a lot of them are pl are politically, they're responding to something political. And he wrote an entire full-length novel, because most are short stories, in response to being frustrated with J.K. Rowling. He just made a whole spoof Harry Potter, where he only used, he used spoof names of all the characters, but nothing else was the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually like a pretty good novel. Um, I read it and I was like, this is this is good writing. So I recommend that. I guess I plug that. I guess I. Uh, yeah, there you go. Plug Chuck Tingles. Uh, send me send me a link. I'll put it in the show notes. Excellent. Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Yeah. Max, your topic is way of making move, moving easier. Collective tips. I put this in the bucket when I had just moved. But really what it is, is like. I feel like the wisest time I am about moving is just after I've moved. Yeah. And then I just slowly spend years, hopefully, uh, like forgetting how to move. And then I move again. Yeah, uh, like ideally you would move and then move again immediately. Why don't, why don't you ever yeah, do that? Really? <laughs> I sort of did that oh. <laughs> because I, to align with some people I wanted to live with when their lease ended, my lease ended uh, two months earlier. So I moved into a place for a couple months and then moved two months after that, uh, which was really, it didn't feel like two separate movings. It felt like one very long right. moving. Right. It was just like a staging area in the middle. Yeah. Uh, so that didn't feel like quite that experience. But maybe maybe if it was like the minimum amount of time between moving. I think what I would want in its like magical ideal world for moving is we all have movers. They're well paid. Um, and we all do a long move like you did, except that we in between stay in like this lovely hotel, uh, where you just have some space to breathe in between homes and you have some time to like repaint your house and do all those things that you wish you like really had time to do at the end of a move and just peace yeah. of mind before you have to set up everything. Right. Mm -hmm. You would just spend that last weeks in the like middle space. That's a real good answer. Thanks. Um, having movers helps a lot. Having like, I would say having friends help is maybe even better. Like, I don't know if this is a service you can pay extra for, but movers don't pack for you. You can pay for that, actually. Okay. All right. I haven't done it. I don't know if I would trust them to, whereas like a friend actually like 
I'm going to see them again. So <laughs> yeah. they'll, they'll care about my my result. That's my problem, actually, is that I have too much shamefully confusing objects. Uh-huh. My ideal living is uh, someone coming into my parlor and then uh, I show them all my uh, things from my travels. Uh, but it loses some magic when those people have to uh, help me lug all those things around. Right. Ideally, I would have friends, uh, but they should wear blindfolds when packing my <laughs> no, things. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. They should just have um, LIDAR, and they can g- yeah. detect what things haven't been packed yet by send- shooting lasers around the room and seeing what shapes yeah. bounce back. Mm-hmm. So a few a few tips that I've found for at least someone... I, I am someone with a lot of things. Oh, yeah. That's another great tip. Don't have a lot of things. That's what everyone tells me. Uh, and it's unhelpful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Every move is a new opportunity to have fewer things. And I always get rid of things. But I I think especially because um, my like job and interest is like... Uh, providing props and making things that rely on like very particular weird stuff yeah. and not having a lot of money. If I get rid of something, there's a good chance that I won't have that thing again. It does feel like a harder opportunity cost when it's like, I have 50 uh, Game Boy DSs or that's not what they were even called. Nintendo DS lights. Fifty counted them 50? Yeah. Is this for an art installation? Uh, partially, and partially I just, uh, really enjoy fixing them and selling them, or just, like, fixing them and giving them to people. It's a very soothing hobby to me. Uh, but the trouble is, I have 50 billion hobbies. Right. So you you just got a bunch of them, and then you decided you were done with this hobby for now, and then you haven't haven't fixed or given them away yet? Yeah, but then I, I have come back to it, and, like, when I was in a bit of a pinch earlier, I, like, fixed four of them and sold them. And I do, like, come back to these hobbies. But I have a very ADHD cycle of hobbies. Uh, but all of my hobbies take up room in my room. I've also I've thought a lot about about stuff and valuing stuff because I also moved in the last year. And I have this terrible problem whenever I try to go through things. I'm like, going to go through stuff, give it away. I'm going to feel so much lighter and replace things. But then I realize I like all of the things I own. And that's... Uh, both validating and upsetting because I really wanted more room, but it makes me feel good that I don't regret anything I've acquired, or at least not very much of it. Yeah. And I think it really varies between people in terms of values. Like some people really value having a visually clear space and some people uh, really want to be able to show their friends all the things they've gotten on their travels. And it's hard to do when you get rid of all the stuff. You could take a photo. You could put could. you could put it in storage and take your friends to the storage unit. You could. You don't sound very excited about either of these ideas. No. I, I like the idea of the storage unit if it was... The thing is, I also want to see the things. Mm-hmm. So if only there was a storage unit that I could also live in. With a webcam. Have a, a bathroom in it and uh, a kitchen and windows. And, uh, yeah. I think yeah. that's a studio, like an art studio. Yeah, they, they, they have those. You, you I mean, you legit could... Depending on, do you have a tech job? If you have a tech job, I bet you could afford another apartment to put all your stuff in. Those are the steps. Get tech job, get studio apartment, have enough yeah. room for all the things. That's what Eric has been telling me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my tip for moving, uh, aside from this deep search into how to solve my problems, uh, was uh, to uh, pack your books last instead of first. Uh, and then they are very easy to unpack because you can just put them on a shelf uh, and then those boxes are immediately out of the way. Yeah. Uh, the, the, in my experience, the easiest box to unpack is the one that you pack last where you're just like going around and picking up all the random shit you left on the floor from all the previous passes. And it's just a box mm-hmm. full of random crap. And you just, when you get to the house, you just dump it on the floor. Oh. Yeah. That's how do you um, clean that? What do you do with that? <laughs> how do you handle that box? Jim? I told you. Like, you what do you? If if you want to be <laughs> careful about it, you like you you carefully distribute it among all the floors of the house. But then it just stays there. Yeah, and then that's I have where it goes. Things on my floor. 
<laughs> Every time I move, there's some things that I don't unpack, and then that's like a magic surprise for me later. It goes into that part of my brain where it's like, oh, those are the things I'm going to get rid of. Um, but then I open it, and I'm like, wow, I'm so happy to have discovered these things. <laughs> and then they go back in the box, and I put them away to surprise myself later. I've still got a couple of bins. Like, I don't even know how to describe the size of these bins. I'm looking at them right now, which is why my voice is getting more deadened, because I'm facing away from the mic. Um, they're full of a huge rat's nest of cables. You know, all mm. sorts of cables. I'm, I'm, I know that people know what I mean by this. Even if they don't have a, ne- a rat's nest themselves, they know about the rat's nest of cables. And I will say that, like, once a year, it comes in handy to have this collection of cables. That's one thing that I've actually organized, I will say, is I have uh, three drawers of cables, but they are divided up into like USB cables and then audio cables and then power cables. Right. Uh, and then I actually went through and I um, put little Velcro straps on every single cable and they're all nice and tidy. And then a friend is like, uh, oh no, a rabbit has eaten my cables. And then I have the cables. I was about to say. Yeah, this is a, this is one of the downsides of having rabbits is that you need to make sure your cable collection is very tidy so you can replace yeah. them. The thing is, though, I've never had the problem where I throw away a cable and then I'm like, oh, man, I really wish I still had that cable. Um, because the chances that that cable would survive even if I kept it are kind of low. So it's OK. Mm. Right. Because the rabbit would destroy the rabbit anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. It's like an automatic document shredder that is the ground. So yeah. like anytime you're like, ah, maybe I should keep this manual. It's just sucked into the abyss. I have a I have a rabbit, which I've just implied, but I have on occasion given him decoy cables where uh, the thing's already broken. And I'm like, I'll just let him find this one. It'll keep him occupied for a while. Yeah. Yeah. They. I mean, they, they just chew through sticks and roots all the time in nature, right? Like that's just going to happen. People also theorize they're looking for the thrill of the electricity. Oh, delicious. You just give them a 9-volt battery. (laughs) (laughs) They'll slice right through. Yeah, yep. The incisors, they they go wild. April and I are in a position where we there's a decent chance we're going to have to move out of our current place and into a much smaller place, although we don't know what that place is going to be yet. We just know that... Any place other than this in the Bay Area is going to be much smaller that we can afford. And mm. so we're in a position of like probably getting rid of 70% of our stuff. Wow. Mm. And it's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff to get rid of. Does that feel like a bunch of really hard decisions for you? Or do you feel attached to a pretty small number of items? Um, I am loosely attached to all the items. But I bet... You know, it's really, I I should actually start, like, taking a hard look at everything and actually making decisions, because my sense of it is that, like, yeah, I could could get rid of all these books. Like, I'm never actually going to read all these books again. Or if I do, I can get them on Libby or whatever. And so I could get rid of the physical books. It's really just a trophy in my bookcase to say, hey, I read this book. Or... Or maybe even just purchased it without reading it. And a lot of what we have is books. So there's that. A lot of it is furniture that most days we don't use. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like it's doable. Like we have a very – like your stuff expands to fill the available space like a gas. That's true. So you need like a stuff compressor. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm, I'm uh, Maxwell's demon for couches. Mm-hmm. You mentioned books and kind of a trophy case. A whole other topic is uh, maybe for another time, but the concept of people who only display books that they've already read or dis- or buy books because they want to read them. Because I remember reading something where it was like someone encouraging people to like display books they hadn't read because a lot of people feel like it's a lie if people can see books you own that you haven't read. And it had never occurred to me that people keep books to, like, document what they've accomplished. Yeah. I just like having books and I want, like, half of them to be things I haven't read. The display, is that kind of for you or for other people? Does it feel like a lie if people see books you haven't read? I don't think it's ever made explicit. 
Uh, I do think that people look at your bookshelf and make judgments about you. And so, and I think a lot of, I think other people know this and curate their bookshelf accordingly. Hmm. I'm definitely also in the camp of like, I give away most books that I finish. And most of my books are ones that are, I guess I have, I have reference books and then I have uh, ones that I intend on reading maybe. Right. I've been trying to figure out who this quote is actually written by. I can only find apocryphal attributions. According to goodreads.com, it's John Waters who said, if you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them. <laughs> what if they have them on Kindle? Yeah, well, this is John Waters we're talking about, so probably didn't <laughs> know about Kindle. But people are still listening to that quote. Wasn't John Waters the one talking about how like you should have an outfit for uh, hacktivism? I don't know much about John Waters. Do you know Max? No, I haven't heard that one. If you want to keep the trophy aspect of your books, uh, you could do like how trophy hunters do uh, and just have... <laughs> like mount the spines of the books you finish uh just despine them when you're done and then uh mount them all on the wall above your hearth right see i thought you were gonna say frame the covers but that is uh much more terrifying and badass mm -hmm. and maybe offensive but i guess it's how people yeah. see the the hunting too mm -hmm. this was part of a larger quote but i found the the sub the sub quote which is that if your kid comes out of the bedroom and he says he just shut down the government, he should have an outfit for that. <laughs> <laughs> and this was in the context of complaining that, like, millennials don't dress cool. Huh. Oh, yeah. Because you're, you're doing your terrorism. Oh, I, I agree with him. Yeah. On that. Like, <laughs> when I met extremist activists, I was, I was so disappointed that they didn't look like... Look like they're doing hackers? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, where are your cutoff gloves? Yeah. Looking back on it, I think hackers is, is incredible. And yeah. of all the things about it that it gets wrong about hacking, definitely the the most important one is like the the sexual and, and race diversity of the cast and like also how cool they dressed. It's an ideal. It is. That yeah. we, we should have. I I have an aspirational keyboard as an item that I, I don't use, but I dream to. Uh, which is my neighbor gave me data hands. Are you aware of data hands? No, but that sounds incredible. It's an incredible keyboard that has a cult following. Uh, and it was produced for like a couple of years in the 90s. Um, I'm going to link you a picture because it's real good. It's like two separate kind of half keyboard, half gloves. Oh, this Zelda art. I, I just saw you link me the Zelda art too. Oh, this is really good. Yeah. Uh, so the keyboard, you kind of stick your hands into it, uh, and you wiggle your individual fingers around, right? Uh, and wiggling them in each direction, uh, like up, down, left, right, and then into the keyboard, uh, is a different key. And you can kind of cord them together by having like shift and alt and a few other functions on the thumb. Many insist that it is the most ergonomic keyboard possible. Uh, it doesn't work in direct sunlight because... <laughs> Instead of springs uh, and like a physical button that you're making contact with, they use uh, like optical sensors and that like when you move your finger, it blocks the sensor so that it's like your your fingers are getting the least resistance possible when moving. Wow. And the optimal setup that people have is resting your hands uh, low on the side of your your chair. Uh, so you have one half of the keyboard on each side of your chair. Right. Uh, and it does have a mouse that you can move, but people don't recommend it. Like, I think even the hardest core people of it uh, don't think the, like, mouse move with your finger works very well for this. Uh, so what they do is they have uh, a foot mouse that you move with your foot, <laughs> and then you have data hands for the keyboard. I come, came down with a bad case of foot mouse the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I've been like practicing with my fingers the the motions you would have to make to type, and this does not like doing this all day does not seem like it would actually be good for you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But you can you can find people who like still update the drivers to work with modern computers. Oh, that's great. Yeah, uh, even though it uses like a a PS2, right? And you have to you have to go through two adapters actually because it has a weird archaic pin in it. My dream is to have these on my desk. 
and then uh, learn to use a screen reader really well. Uh, so that way I don't have to have a monitor and I can just have an earpiece and then these glove keyboards and then just be like full on hacking, you know? Yeah. Where I'm just staring into the abyss, wiggling my fingers. And I'm like, sorry, I'm just responding on Twitter. I got to keep my eyes on this abyss. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds uh, sounds pretty incredible. That sounds like a... Okay, this is an extra hobby now for you. On the plus side, it doesn't require much space. Yeah. Hopefully the computers exist like in your clothes. Yeah. It's like your it's your underwear computer that all the wires are leading in there. Uh, are we going to another topic? Yeah. Uh, my topic is melatonin parenting decisions. So this is about how uh, my son, who I suspect has undiagnosed ADHD, is terrible at sleeping, terrible at getting to sleep, would often take like upwards of two hours to fall asleep lying in bed and like repeatedly calling for us to come be with him. And one of the symptoms of ADHD, which I discovered because I also have self-diagnosed ADHD, Mm -hmm. uh, is late onset melatonin, melatonin Mm. generation. Uh, Mm. And so like even if if you avoid the screens before bed, it's still going to take extra time to uh so I, i've been taking melatonin for like probably like 15 years now every night and it's great it, it it definitely had a similar effect where like i would take a long time to fall asleep now i take like 20 minutes to fall asleep it's much better uh and we, mm. we we asked our doctor like can we give this he's three now so can we give our, our three-year-old melatonin and they said they gave us the they gave us permission and so we got these melatonin gummies and we're giving him 500 microgram micrograms uh, and it's it's like a miracle. It's like he he falls asleep uh, in just a few minutes almost every night, and it's such a, a an amazing change. Like uh, not just in the quality of life of like he doesn't have to fucking lie awake in bed for two hours every night, which can't be pleasant. And it's also not pleasant for us to hear him like yell for us all the time. Uh, but also like he is now like much more alert during the day because he's getting better sleep. Like That's great. he no longer yeah. is like just zoning out and watching TV in the mornings. He is like mm. running around and doing stuff actively, which is, mm. yeah, it's really, really cool to see. And, and then we had like over the past week, he, he had an illness, which I then caught and I'm still recovering from that. And so is he, as it turns out, he went like 24 hours without any symptoms. Uh, and so we sent him back to school and then like that, the night after that, he was just puking all night, which sucked. But like, mm. uh, we were really worried the the night in between when we thought he was better that like, oh shit, the melatonin isn't working tonight. It turns out he was just sick still. So, mm. so that, that that's a, that's another topic, I suppose. I should have a next week is how to deal with uh, when everybody in the family gets horribly ill at the same time. Mm. I've never mm. experienced being in a household where everyone's ill at the same time. Yeah. Uh, which I can yeah, safely yeah. say without knocking on wood because I live alone. It's yeah. um, <laughs> it sounds miserable. It's usually staggered, thankfully. In Japan, if um, you have children or elderly and they're sick and you're sick, uh, you can call for help uh, in most provinces wow. or prefectures. Um, like this is a government service? Yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. What if you're white? Uh I don't think it matters, but I think <laughs> okay. you would have a hard time accessing the service because Japan is uh, a bureaucratic, it's it's an island made of bureaucracy. Uh, right. And so it's it's very hard to navigate if you don't know the language Not well. great for someone with ADHD either. Yeah. Everything in Japan still uses faxes. Wow. wow. Uh, one time I had to submit a document uh, at City Hall. You, you definitely want a fax machine in your underwear computer, by the way. That's yeah. super, super important. <laughs> oh, that was in a Nickelodeon show. There was a, a someone with a butt com, a butt printer. No oh, good. And I always wanted that. Uh, yeah. I've got a butt 3D printer. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Jim. I was trying to figure out how to how to tastefully do that joke, and I just don't think there's a good I don't think there's a way to do it. No. I think that was as close as it gets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jim, did I tell you did I ask you actually? I had a question for you. Uh, which was whether uh, Jim is short for uh, video, James? <laughs> I've, I've made this joke repeatedly. <laughs> um, 
If you look at Facebook, that's how to that's how you pronounce my name. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my uh, my my uh, the name on my birth certificate is James. Uh, I probably got this joke from you and just forgot. <laughs> oh, and just, I like maybe are we are we friends on Facebook? I don't know. I don't think so. Your Facebook presence does not seem like it lends itself, Max, to knowing the pronunciations on people's profiles. <laughs> I was so envious when everyone else had pronunciation guides on theirs and then uh i had that feature like the latest in a b testing on facebook <laughs> i was annoyed because i had changed my name when that came out and my my name is michael um which i chose but my birth name is in another language and so that would have been so useful uh and the opportunity was lost forever <laughs> yeah yeah i always misspell your name michael or my michael <laughs> I always I always do M I C H and then my I type E and then I backspace and then I type A. Do you wanna know a secret that I'm now sharing with a lot of people is that for most of my life I also misspelled Michael and I had to really I had to really make sure I got that down before I publicly changed my name. <laughs> yeah. I in fact in the early stages of trying it out, I made an email address with the name Michael in it and I did spell it wrong and realized it pretty immediately. But there is um, a Michael Zaki email address out there chosen that is spelled incorrectly. Listeners, you have a secret challenge now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finding Find a way to email. <laughs> <laughs> the reward is nothing because probably it's not active and uh, no one will respond. You'll be all activated again just to see if anyone ever solves the puzzle. Yeah, you gotta you got to yeah. answer the security questions and log in <laughs> and then yeah. go find the... Reset password. Right. Hope I know where what I linked it to. <laughs> uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. All right. This for this for this poem, we're going to be reading FJF. Uh, Max, tell us about FJF. Yeah. A few years ago, I, I think just like just pre-pandemic, a friend who has uh, an art gallery was doing a thing where um, every uh, weekend uh, during February, sort of for Valentine's Day. Uh, she was having a poet in the gallery uh, to, that would write poems for you. Uh, but a poet a poet canceled last minute. Well, I was asked if I could write some poetry, um, but I am not a poet. And so I, de- I decided to armchair this in the rudest way possible, where I was like, <laughs> all right, uh, you know, poetry can't be that hard. So I will just <laughs> code a poet real quick. Uh, and I did this in the most naive way possible without looking anything up. Because I thought that would be funnier. And so, what, what's your what was your approach? So my approach was to take a an existing poem uh, and then just mad lips it as much as possible. So oh. I encoded the complete poem in terms of uh, parts of speech, right? Uh, and then I made a corpus for every part of speech, uh, not just parts of speech, but like we sat around for a couple hours just doing like thinking of all of the uh like jobs we could and uh just specific uh kind of genres of thing not just like only parts right uh, and i didn't use any existing corpses <laughs> yeah which in the end i actually think did make it better but this is uh aped in format and structure from t.s Eliot, uh the love song of j alfred uh proofrock and what I did is I built a little machine that when you pushed a button, it would print out one of my versions of this poem. This is what's up with my head. When you said J. Alfred Proofrock, I was automatically like, oh, he means J. Allard Proofrock. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's that's where I am right now. That T.S. Eliot poem about Microsoft executive. Right. Uh, so I was thinking I could read a version of this. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. That sounds great. All right. Let us want then, us and Z, when the litter is made out between the peasant, like a lawn ruined after a pine cone, let y'all discuss, behind certain goopy sky, the transparent yearbook of soft metal jaw in soft bristled prawn and angular cedar in pancreas. Streets that do like a coarse teeth of, smi- of slimy chocolate, 
to jump you to a, an rough typewriter. Oh, do not somersault. What is quail? Let him listen and seem our death. In the bee, the thing take and use. Talk of jacket. The matted thing that leaves its woman without the duck. The shiny park that gives us its king across the spawn. Licked its lightning before the lake, before the heart of the lake lingered against the ghost that hugs the inside crab. Let's embrace its laces, the demon that appears inside leggings, slips through the placebo, jumping out gnarled mouth, and follow that I was a smooth spiky neck, curled once towards the trees, now lusting nose. I will say there is a lot of really evocative imagery in this Word soup. Yeah. Or, or is it word salad? I can't remember. <laughs> Either one. Super salad. <laughs> yeah. Super salad? So how did people receive this? This You didn't read this poem. This is a new one. This or, is a new one. So, or, or how was this presented to people? Was it presented in the form of like, hit F5 for a new poem? It was uh, when you pushed a button, I, I hooked it up to a little receipt printer and it would <laughs> print out the whole poem for you. You would get a personal poem. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I said, to personalize it, just, you know, think of the thing that you're wondering about and uh, just kind of uh, Ouija board it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And people, it actually, I think it did actually teach me something about like the use of proc gen, which is like people would find one or two really interesting and evocative things in there for themselves. And they would yeah. just like kind of pull out like, oh, this one's good. And I'm like, yeah. So this was like a human curated thing i think you would get imagery that you wouldn't uh think of on your own and you could probably weed out the ones that didn't mean anything uh and you would get a neat poem if it was like a humanist like a robot assisted human poem yeah yeah i think that's totally like if i were to try to try to write a poem i would definitely take that approach of like guiding an ai and i an ai to do it mm. or guiding mm -hmm. some sort of proc gen process mm. I think I would love to use something like this as kind of a writing prompt, which is kind of what you're saying. Um, but I've definitely written poems where I'm just saying things that come to mind and I don't necessarily even know what I meant. But then at the end, I'm like, oh, yeah, now I see what I meant. <laughs> so I think sometimes the human process is a little bit of word soup, too. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think editing one of these would be really interesting. Yeah. Or like showing people... Uh, <laughs> human human word soup and one of these and be like figure out which one is robot generated yeah i did actually use the same basis to make like a a story prompt thing the like, of just replacing parts of speech with the same part of speech because i really liked making up these things with a friend that were like uh someone's dream job when they were a kid and then what they're doing now uh which gives a slightly depressing tone but um then I was I was part of a writing group and I would interrupt their writing and make them come up with jobs uh, until we had uh, 255 jobs. And then it would just like say what someone's it would give a name and it'd be like Tucker dreamed of being an astronaut, but ended up a soup repair person. <laughs> uh, and that was pretty good. I, a soup repair is a field that. Anybody should be proud to go into. Yeah, I agree. You could say that like uh, Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay is like soup repair sort. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. There's someone who comes in and yells at you and and all your staff. Um, yeah. I don't know what Gordon Ramsay actually does. I just hear he yells. I hear that too. It doesn't seem good. <laughs> I've heard he only yells in American television, and he's a nice person in British television, so that seems... Gordon Ramsay may be a reflection of oneself. That seems right. Oh, I have a final recommendation, actually. Can I can I throw in a, a second? Yeah, do quick... it. Um, so my favorite reality show of any kind, and one of the only ones I like, has come to American audiences, because it's now on Netflix. Uh, and on Netflix, it's under old enough exclamation point <laughs> uh, yeah yeah my wife and i just watched a couple episodes of that it's so good and i hope they put more of it up for uh netflix because 
there is a many, many seasons of it. And it's the cutest thing. It's kids uh, going on their first errand alone. Yeah, okay. Well, let's make time for this. Tell us about the first errand. So it's like kids that are very young uh, being sent out to like go get something from the store for the first time by themselves. We're talking like three-year-olds. Yeah. With the intent of like teaching people both like that you can do this and also you do it by relying on the community to help you. Yeah. And I've told people about this for years and they have not believed me because I think that sending kids out that young is more outlandish here yeah uh, than it is in japan yeah yeah no that the, the kid would also receive help here it's just that the help they would receive is they would be driven to a police station to be to yeah and await their parents yeah who would then be reprimanded or questioned in some way at, at least yeah in japan younger kids uh it is very acceptable to like send them out on their own uh especially in smaller towns yeah and yeah like jim said it's like between the ages of two and six is the range often. Uh, yeah. And these kids are so relatable <laughs> for me as an adult, <laughs> where like the first episode, I think, is like this two-year-old going to the store and he has to get like four things from the store, which is a lot to keep track of. Yeah. Uh, and he's so like sure of his mission. And then he gets to the store and he just staggers back when the doors open automatically. And it's like he's just pauses outside for a while and then just sprints in to try and get the things. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's how it is. <laughs> I think he forgets the curry and has to go back. Yeah, I was so impressed that he went back for the curry. I was like, I would not go back. <laughs> I was like, we're not. Sorry, we'll d- make do without curry tonight. <laughs> yeah, the thing that struck me most about that particular episode uh, was that like, he was like crossing streets where there were cars yeah. driving. Winston... Like, no matter what culture we lived in, I would not trust Winston to, to be alone around uh, around cars. They give him a little flag, though, so he can hold up his big flag. Yeah. This is as big as him. Well, yeah, no, no. Win- the problem is, like, Winston would, like, see a roly-poly and dash into the street. Yeah. Having seen a few episodes of that, I, I think they're tailored child-specific to kids who would run for the roly-poly were given more safe tasks yeah <laughs> a little yeah. closer to home well yeah obviously you you tailor it to your kids and that would be how you do it yeah we also watched an episode where like the errand was like juicing some oranges i guess yeah and- yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the kid i was thinking of i think that's a really pulling cool the street kid yeah i relate very much to get out the supplies then run and chase the dog for an hour right and then when your mom calls saying have you done it yet saying yes and then going and starting to leave to chase the dog again. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, no, I, I also recommend this show. Old Enough on Netflix now. Uh, and that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Michael, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I am Soft Sea Bunny on Instagram and Creative.Rabbit on TikTok. And Max, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can email me at uh, maxx.infinity at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram? On the Topic Lords Discord. Yeah, you can find me on the Topic Lords Discord for a low price of a Patreon. That's, that's right. You can <laughs> you can pledge for one episode, immediately delete it, and then I'll, you'll still get the invite and you yeah. can come, come on in and talk to everybody. Just slip in that door. Yeah, this is like I'm actually giving you permission to do this. Like, go, go for do, it. If if you don't actually want to give me money, that's fine. But you, yeah, you gotta you gotta have some standards, and my standards are: you either give me money or you pretend you're gonna give me money, and then. <laughs> so I guess you could also like come up to me in, like on the street and wave a wave a dollar bill in my face, and then like pull it back when I reach for it. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good enough too. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on Topic Lords. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use.
You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode. Oh, I'm alone here. This will might be cut out. We'll see. But I can tell you, listeners, something. Oh, and it'll be a secret to everyone. Um, oh, no, my time is running out. Uh, oh, man. I uh, In 11th grade, I uh, crashed my bike on my way to work. Uh, and I told everyone that I had swerved to avoid a cat. Uh, but there was no cat. I just swerved uh, for no reason. Uh, yeah. And uh, every time someone praised me for at least you didn't hit that cat. I was like, yeah, I didn't hit that cat. And that's the truth. Uh, and I felt guilty ever since. So thank you for, for helping uh, take care of that burden, listeners. Or maybe just Esper when you edit this.